What if the speed of light was 30 miles an hour? What if Earth had two suns? Which cereal mascot would win in a what fight? What if everyone lived underground? What if, it rained what if money grew what on if trees? What if pigs could fly? I don't know if that would actually happen. It's much easier to store a unicycle than to store a horse. Hello everybody and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, today we have a grab bag question, the power grab bag, which I don't remember if I ever, if I bothered explaining what it was in the preview. Probably um, not. You did but... not. <laughs> so it could, it could be multiple things. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, not superpowers, not like people named powers. Not um, exponentials. About... Yeah, not exponentials either. That would have been fun, though. Put that on the list. <laughs> but a better way to phrase we basically basically what we did is we each took a different fill in the blank for this fill in the blank question what if everything was powered by blank so everything in the world that is powered by all our good dinosaur juices and like solar power and all that yada yada we all picked one specific thing and said what if that was the only source so chris i'm gonna let you start off what question did you answer so I started off with the most basic source of power that you can get, and that is human power. What if everything was human powered? So my first thought when thinking about this was just like the Flintstone cars, like Fred Flintstone running in a car and that's how you power your car. Obviously, that's not what we would actually do. <laughs> we actually like we do have ways that are human powered already to get places. The most obvious one is bicycles. So professional bicycle riders can maintain 25 miles per hour on flat ground which is pretty fast it's not like a substitute for cars really but it's decent yeah 25 is not that's faster than i would expect yeah well that's for a professional biker too so it might be a little lower for like normal people but it's still pretty good but there are some like better versions of bikes so there's a thing called a velomobile i was really hoping you were gonna say tricycle (laughs) (laughs) So Velomobile is basically just a bike that's enclosed in like, it has an enclosure and it's protected from the weather and stuff. And it has like better aerodynamics. And there are some like, like electricity assisted Velomobiles, but they're also ones that are purely human powered. And the enclosure actually adds a little bit of weight to it. So like if you're going uphill, then it's a slower climb up hills than like a normal bike. But if you're going downhill or on flat ground, then or the better aerodynamics helps increase the, your top speed. Um, I actually watched a video of a guy going, he, he reached 68 miles per hour on one of these things, which is pretty good, in my opinion. That's actually a pretty good replacement. Like, it, obviously, cars can go faster than that, but it's, like, within the range. And these are actually pretty street-friendly, too. So that's that's driving on land. But what about, like, other types of transportation, like in the water? So, obviously... We have other boats that don't like run on on motors and stuff. We have sailboats, but those those are wind powered, so that's not that doesn't count for us. But we also have like any type of boat that requires paddling. So like if you have an oar or a paddle and a canoe or a kayak, things like that like are human powered. A paddle boat. <laughs> I can't remember if that was a th- if that's like what you called it. <laughs> a real thing, a real thing or not? It's it's confusing. There's there's are some that are steam powered and also some that are foot powered. So you have to be very careful when you say it. But yes, paddle <laughs> Yeah, and then there's there are vehicles that like go underwater too that are pedal powered. They're very similar to just like a bike where you just pedal and then it let me it makes you go underwater. There's a bunch of them. Uh, so like translating movement underwater is actually pretty easy for manpower. So we have that too. But what about air? What about traveling in the air? Because planes are a big part of our society too, and we would want to fly places. So we have gliders. That's, I guess, manpowered, kind of. I mean, it uses the air when you're gliding, I guess, but I still count it as manpowered. The power there is coming from you climbing up something. So I would say yes, yeah. that counts. Yeah. Yeah. But that that's the thing. It does require you climbing up something for it to work. It can't take off from the ground like a plane. But there are some uh, human-powered vehicles that can take off. So the first officially authenticated takeoff from a human-powered aircraft was in 1961. It is from the 
the SUMPAC, S-U-M-P-A-C, which stands for Southampton University Manpowered Aircraft. It's pedal-powered as well, just like all of our other stuff. And the pedals power a two-bladed propeller. And this vehicle actually won something that's called a Kremer Prize. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Um, Kremer, maybe? Kremer? I don't know. But the Kremer Prize basically just awards money prizes to like different innovators of human-powered flight. So there's a bunch of them. There Another Kremer Prize was awarded in 1979 when the Gossamer Albatross, which is the name of an aircraft, flew from England to France purely on human power, which is pretty impressive in my books. So we have technology. Or we have like human powered things that can uh, travel between countries. We, we don't have anything that can like travel across the ocean yet, but there actually is a prize for anyone that does achieve that. So if we do that, then they'll get the money, but we can go from country to country. Well, England to France is technically over the ocean, right? <laughs> A little bit of it. I guess it depends on... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to go from England to anywhere without cr- crossing over the ocean. So we have we have modes of transportation, but that's not the only technology I was looking at. I, I wanted to figure out... Because we have, like, all this other... We have, like, phones and TVs and everything that uses electricity. And in my interpretation of this question, um, I was trying to decide if I could use electricity or not. And what I landed on is that if it is generated, if the electricity is generated from humans, like if you have a, a like a crank powered flashlight or something and you crank it and then you turn it on, that counts because you're the source of the energy is from a human. We just need to store the, the human generated energy somehow. So basically, like, can we do that crank powered flashlight on a larger scale and have like a like a walking wheel sort of thing and like connect it to a generator or something and store it? to power our society and we've we've done similar things to the like this in the past so we've had treadmill sorts of things specifically in prisons so they called them penal treadmills i think penal penal treadmills (laughs) like penalty but without the t i don't know if you pronounce it's the penal penal or penal (laughs) but they basically use these treadmills that people walked on to mill corn or pump water Um, And they used prisoners to walk on them, obviously. And these were used in the early Victorian period in Britain. They held up to like 25 prisoners on one wheel. And they would have the prisoners walk six hours a day on these. Now, you could theoretically hook this up to a generator and do the same thing and store some energy. And it achieves the same thing. So, obviously, this this was a punishment. And we don't necessarily want to punish our citizens. So I was, I was looking into whether there were, were like less punishing ways of doing this. And there is a technology called PaveGen. So PaveGen is basically a pavement technology that converts footsteps of pedestrians into electricity when they step on it. And the way it works is when you step on it, it compresses the slab about five millimeters. And they're a little vague. I guess they're trying to keep the technology a little bit secret, but they said it involves electromagnetic induction whenever someone steps on it, and that's how it generates power. Now, this technology has been criticized for its very, very low output in energy, so... A valid criticism for an energy-producing product. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't produce much energy. Well, I mean, they have they have installed these in a few places, like sports stadiums and, like, running trails and stuff. Oh, I'm not saying you can't use them. I'm just saying it's a valid criticism. It's like it's like criticizing a plane for not flying very high. It's like, it's yeah, <laughs> they should go higher. Yeah, but... One of the sources I found said that 54,000 steps generates only 0.06 kilowatt hours of power, (laughs) which is very low. And then another calculation I found said that uh, four hours of walking on the paved gen stuff generates 0.02% of a person's energy needs. So obviously, this isn't very good. Um, And this kind of highlights the main issue with depending on human power. We've actually kind of mentioned this before in previous episodes that human power is very inefficient. So like an an elite cyclist can produce close to 400 watt hours of mechanical power, but that's like an elite cyclist. An average adult can produce around 50 to 150 watt hours. Um, And over a longer shift, like an eight hour shift or so, um, an average adult can sustain around 75 watt hours. Now, the mechanical part of this is actually kind of 
is pretty efficient. So modern racing bicycles have a greater than 95% mechanical efficiency in utilizing this power. But the problem you run into is the conversion into electricity. So we've actually covered this, Ben covered this in episode 99 when he looked at hamster power. And this next part, my main source of research was basically just listening to Ben talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry you had to do that. That's, that's the that's... <laughs> Yeah, I try to avoid him as much as possible. Penal is what it is. So he said that bike generators have a 10 to 20% loss in energy. Storing the energy in a battery has around a 10 to 35% loss. And then converting that energy from the battery back into alternating current has around 5 to 15% loss. So that's a total of 42 to 67% loss. Now, he looked at charging a phone. So he said that charging a phone was 19.2 watt hours. It required that much. And he said that it would take one hamster 11.3 days to charge a phone. Humans are better than that, as I would expect. So if we assume the same 42% loss that Ben assumed in his answer, the average adult can generate 43.5 watt hours of power. And that means that a human can charge a phone in about 10 and a half hours, which isn't too bad, I guess. Uh, It's less than a day. It's less than half a day. But that's just a phone. Obviously, we need more than that. So I looked at the power consumption of like an average household, which Ben also actually looked at, and I just took his number. So, <laughs> so Ben, you feel good about your answer being on blast here? I'm so <laughs> glad I was able to help with your research so much, Chris. Yeah, save me some time. So he said that home power consumption averaged around 10,972 kilowatt hours per year, or 30 kilowatt hours per day. And he... For hamsters, you need 17,647 hamsters. For humans, we only need 690 people to power a home. (laughs) So that's pretty good, I guess, if you compare it to hamsters. (laughs) Are we? (laughs) Uh, I guess uh, I have no reason to compare it to hamsters, but it makes me look better. (laughs) Obviously, this is not a good option because we don't have that many people to power just one home. So we kind of need to just like reduce our power consumption. So I I tried to look into the different categories of power consumption that we have and to see if we can like get rid of any of them. And according to the Energy Information Administration, they broke it up into categories. So 16% of our energy is used for space cooling, 15% for space heating, 12% for water heating, 6% for refrigeration, 5% for clothes drying or dryers. Um, 4% for lighting, and 4% for TVs and related equipment. Now, pretty much all that stuff is very important, except for the TV. <laughs> um, I guess uh, you could probably get rid of the dryers too, and maybe just air, air dry your clothes. But that's only getting rid of 8% of our energy consumption. Now, they did have this other category that was just other uses, and that was 31%. And in in that, they included... Electric devices, like small electric devices, heating elements, exterior lights, outdoor grills, pool and spa heaters, backup electricity generators and motors. So we could probably get rid of all those too if we wanted to. So total, that's a 39% reduction. Still not nearly enough what we need. I think in general, we just need to reduce our overall power consumption, like spread out through all these categories. And then we would have to reduce it a lot. (laughs) I don't know how reasonable that is but we have no other options we just have to do it but in order to increase like our efficiency i wanted to see like because we're, we're saying human part but all this power actually comes from the food that we eat that's where all of our energy comes from so i want to look at what was the most like how much would we actually have to eat to do this so i was going to use the chicken nuggets as our baseline food because in our recent um Patreon episode, we talked about not using chicken nuggets in a while, so I wanted to do that. But the problem is that chicken nuggets are very highly processed, and they require require energy to make, which is kind of counterproductive to what we're trying to do. We want to use as little energy as possible when making our food. So I wanted to try to come up with a new baseline food that can help fuel us, ideally something that doesn't require any cooking or processing, and something that's high in nutrients. And I found a spreadsheet from the USDA that it seems to include every single food ever. 
(laughs) (laughs) What? I want it. Send this to me. So I opened it and I got a message that said there's too much data for Excel to handle. And then I went to the scroll bar on the right and I like dragged it the smallest sliver I possibly could. And it brought me down to row 4000. And then I went down to the very bottom just to see how many rows there were. And there were 1,048,576 rows. And then after that, there were no more rows. It wasn't even like blank rows. The rows just didn't exist anymore. So there's at least a million foods on the Excel spreadsheet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Excel spreadsheet. And I was going to use this spreadsheet to figure out like calorie counts and stuff and like what had what nutrients. But the labels on these spreadsheets weren't very clear and it seemed very convoluted. I couldn't actually figure out what the numbers meant. So I ditched it. Also, what would your computer do if you tried to sort? It would just break. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So I went with a different tactic and I I just decided to look up what diets like endurance runners go for. So obviously endurance runners need a lot of calories and they actually need a lot of carbs. They need a high carb diet. So according to the International Sports Sciences Association, they suggest 70% of their calories come from carbs for endurance training. Um, And they suggest... 700 grams of carbs for someone who weighs around 70 kilograms, which is like 154 pounds. Now, carbs have four calories per gram. So that means they're suggesting 2,800 calories of carbs per day for endurance training, which is a lot of carbs. So I looked up a list of high, like carb dense foods. I found a list on Healthline. So on their list, the top three were quinoa, oats, and buckwheat. The problem with those is that you need to boil them to eat them, um, and that consumes power. And as I said before, trying not to do that. But number four on the list was bananas. And bananas, you don't need to cook, you don't need to process or anything, you just pull it off the tree and eat it. And a medium-sized banana has 27 grams of carbs, which means that we would need to eat 26 bananas a day, which actually I think is actually pretty doable. (laughs) It's not too many, just a little more than one an hour unless you go to sleep. Then I guess that's not true. But yeah, you can spread it out. Uh, And you also need like protein and fat too, which bananas don't have, but you could just like eat nuts or something. But the main part of your diet will be the bananas. So if everything was human powered, everyone would eat a lot of bananas. That was my takeaway. (laughs) That's (laughs) bananas. D-A-N-A-N-A-S. Ben, what did you do? So I I looked at what if everything was steam powered, Um, getting us to our glorious steampunk I guess, present in this uh, hypothetical. So the first thing I figure out, which is really, how, what does it mean to be steam powered? Because technically, a good portion of our power currently is steam powered. So coal and nuclear plants, which combine to make about 40% of our um, power generation in the US, they're just using either burning coal or nuclear fission to heat water, which turns into steam, which turns into their generator. So technically, a lot of our power is steam-powered. We're already living in the awesome steampunk present. Side note that's kind of unrelated. I also, in the course of this, found out how natural gas power generation works. And they're basically just huge engines that inject gas into pressurized air that moves hundreds of, mi- hundreds of miles per hour, which they then ignite to spin a turbine, which is super metal and awesome, but not steam-powered, but still cool. And I wanted to share it. <laughs> yeah, this steam power is cool and all, but really where it's at is... Natural gas, <laughs> propane and propane accessories, my friends. <laughs> Anyway, so looking at it this way, we can all agree, isn't really the spirit of the question. No one's going to look at a nuclear plant and say, yeah, that's steam-powered, even if it's technically accurate. So what we're really looking at here is things that are using um, using steam to do you know, a mechanical process. So if we wanted to have, quote-unquote, steam-powered electric generation, it would be literally like, I mean, it would basically be a coal power plant, but we wouldn't say that because it's going to make a question too easy. But beyond that, we'd also have just things like, say, a steam engine that is literally using steam to, you know, move pistons to move something. So some things, doing things this way is very easy. Example, steam trains. We've all seen Thomas' tank engine. We know this is a real thing. (laughs) Why would you pick the fictional character to prove it's real? (laughs) Hey, I mean, it's who who knows? You know, it's fine. Whatever. Just don't worry about it. (laughs) So obviously steam engines are a thing, but turns out they are way worse than non-steam alternative options. Every week, a steam locomotive uses its own weight and coal and water. A steam engine, so when you're using a steam engine, you are, you know, boiling water and pressurizing it so you get this steam that can be used to, to do work. 
Uh, and that means that at the start of when you're going to use it, you have to use, you know, take a bunch of time to let that heat up initially. So for, say, a steam locomotive, that time is hours. For like a small, a, like a small uh, locomotive, it'll be like one to three hours. Large ones can be, you know, six to ten hours. And if you want to stop the train, you have to let off some of that pressure. So you're going to have to repressurize it afterwards. It won't be that full time because the water will still be hot. And the um, some of that time will also be heating up, you know, the, the boiler itself and sort of the space around it so it maintains its temperature. So you're going to have to, re, you know, redo all that. But you will have to take breaks every time it stops to reheat and pressurize your uh, your boiler. Ben, I need you to write an action movie where there's a plot line of they're making their escape and they find an old steam train. They're like, oh, yeah, this is the one. And then they find out it takes six hours to start. <laughs> it's just like a last stand as they're waiting several hours to make the train go. I love it. Yeah, the guy, the guy hot wires all the things and, you know, gets the coal and does the whole, like, science montage. And it's like, all right, we're home free now, boy. It's like, okay, we just got to wait till Wednesday. That was the mistake. He, <laughs> was, he was hot wiring. He should have been hot watering. I think we just wrote the, the next sequel to Speed. Sure did. I feel like there's like 8 billion. Okay, you know what? We're not talking about train movies now. Mark doesn't see any movies. It's not worth it. So they also were very inefficient. Only about 5% of the potential energy of the fuel actually winds up going towards driving the wheels as opposed to around 25% for a diesel engine. So very, very inefficient. And they just require just like a huge amount of maintenance due to all the, the maintenance and clean the boiler and things like that. A steam locomotive would actually only be available for about 35% of the time as opposed to like 95% availability, availability for a diesel engine. So we could have steam trains, but they would be bad because steam trains are bad is the answer, it turns out. But, you know, steam, steam engines we all knew, or steam locomotives we all knew were a thing. What about things that we nef- didn't necessarily knew already were steam-powered sometimes technically? Uh, like cars. So technically, steam cars were actually a thing before internal combustion engine cars. At the start of the 20th century, over half the cars in the U.S., which admittedly was not that many cars, but were steam-powered. And in 1906, they actually the land speed record was set by a, um, a steam car called the Stanley Rocket with a, a speed of 127 miles per hour, which is pretty fast, faster than I would have expected for a, a steam-powered car. And apparently, steam cars were actually great. Unlike a uh, you know like a piston-based internal combustion engine, they gave constant pressure, which meant you didn't actually need a gearbox or a clutch to drive them. They just you know it was just super easy to drive. They were great. There was admittedly a few minutes for the boiler to heat up, but that wasn't that big of a deal. You know, it's like when you take your you know start a car in the winter you have to let it heat up a little bit. And the real thing that sunk steam cars was cost, actually, because when Ford started making their you know mass-produced cars. By like 1918, the the Model T was about six times cheaper than the Stanley Steamer, which was the most popular steam car at the time. And also they had to be like really heavy because of, you know, that big boiler on there. So they kind of just disappeared at that point and they have not been seen since. Modern steam cars aren't really a thing. Uh, I saw an article talking about how maybe they'd come back because of like environmental reasons, but it seems pretty unlikely because most of the issues of steam cars still there and also oil companies have a gajillion dollars and they don't want that to happen. So pretty not going to happen. Uh, there was, however, recently a new steam-powered land speed record set. Uh, in 2009, someone hit 151 miles per hour using a car that uh, burned liquid petroleum gas to heat 12 suitcase-sized boilers up to like 750 degrees Fahrenheit. And that record they broke was the one that was set in 1906, which is pretty insane. It took 103 years to break that record, which is also probably the most damning reason I don't expect steam cars to ever do anything, is that it took them a century to break a record for the speed of a steam car. I don't, I don't think it took a record to beat because it's just so hard to improve on the tech. I think they, some, the guy beat this, the steam land speed record, and the reaction was, who's still competing? Also <laughs> that. That is also part <laughs> like, of it. Not going to lie. It's like, I built the biggest guillotine. Nobody's building them anymore. We don't use them. <laughs> uh, we could technically have steam cars. They just, once again, would not be very good. I looked into steam aircraft. There is a Wikipedia page called Steam Aircraft. It is a list of 19 projects that all have some some variation of there is no record of a flight being made or a working prototype was never developed or... Um, oh, where was the really good one? <laughs> uh, there was one... There was one that there was a um, an article written in a, a paper about a steam-powered plane being developed in Berlin. It was written in a, a Czechoslovakian paper. Uh, and then the reporter was arrested and no one ever heard of the project again. 
That's kind of how all these ones went. So steam-powered aircraft <laughs> didn't really happen. Do you know what he was arrested for? Uh, it didn't say. Let's see. Can I find witchcraft? The only source was was some. Uh, it was like a magazine from the 1930s, and I could not, you know, find any uh, like actual sourcing of the the arrest. But I mean, it was in Germany in the 1930s, so I figured they could figure out some reason. Mm. But yeah, so really, the real reason that there aren't any um, steam powered aircraft that have been successful is just that boilers are heavy and not great at producing power in a you know a way that'll give you the power to weight ratio you need for flight so there have been some made that are you know sort of like very early aircraft that could do sort of hops but no sustained flight aside from technically i think there were a couple of of more you know zeppelin style ones but it was just not an effective particularly effective way to actually do that and people stopped doing it but technically might both have zeppelins but no actual like planes so this is kind of how things go for, for large things just overall, right, is generally we can do it aside from flight, but you're going to need heat up time up front. It's going to be less powerful just because there are limitations on the power you can generate through steam. Almost always going to be heavier than our current options. And just we could make it work, but it'll be worse. Where things get tricky is once you get to things that are smaller than where it's practical to have their own, you know, full size steam boiler on them, like, say, a cell phone. If you wanted to have a portable phone that is steam-powered, and we're not going to have just, you know, a battery or something, what you're going to need to have is a portable steam boiler generator system you carry with you, either wheeling it around or on your back or something. That is, you know, heating water, pressurizing it, pushing out the steam, using it to run a generator, and then running your phone off of that. And technically, we do already have something that that is a... Um, effectively a steam you know boiler that is pressurizing and heating water that you carry on your back or on wheels and as a steam cleaner that's pretty much what they're doing is they're taking water heating it to not as hot as necessarily a um you know a boiler would for like a, a steam engine but using that water to then bring out pressurized and clean carpets or whatever and i tried my best to calculate how much power you could generate with a steam cleaner and man i tried so hard I tried so hard, guys, but <laughs> that math is really complicated, and it's really hard to get information about how powerful a steam cleaner is. Yeah, because once it's powerful enough to, you know, turn water into steam, no one really cares anymore. Right, that's kind of all you have to do with it. So you couldn't just use one of our existing steam cleaners because those are all, you know, either plugged into the wall or have a battery. So you'd probably have to have, you know, a coal burner or something on it, um, which seems, not going to lie, incredibly dangerous, but technically possible i think i am a little doubtful you could run you might be able to with an entire you know like suitcase sized or backpack sized steam engine power like a single phone but it does not seem particularly practical or safe or smart so we're probably not gonna have anything you know machinery that's smaller than like i don't know a motorcycle size so that's kind of our world everything's gonna take a while to start up and we're not going to have phones unless you carry around your own generator. And it's going to kind of suck, but technically works. So there you go. Marcus, what'd you do? Yeah, so Ben, you're, you're, kind of, you're kind of running into similar issues that I was thinking about. So the one I did is, what if everything was nuclear powered? Speaking of carrying a whole bunch of <laughs> you know fuel with you. So big scale, like this one is, you know, of the ones we picked, you know, I guess steam is also pretty used elsewhere if you you know if you if you consider all the current power plants that use turbines as steam powered but this one is pretty much the most reasonable because some countries have actually already pretty much committed to this because they don't want to compete with all these other big scary countries with big fancy armies for oil france for example just went ahead and built like 60 nuclear reactors in the 70s and 80s and now 80 percent of their power comes from nuclear energy so you can definitely have the your primary infrastructure be these nuclear power plants. And my personal opinion, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this, my personal opinion is that there should be a lot more nuclear power around. But you run into the problem of scaling down because kind of similar to you, but I didn't, I didn't, want, to, I didn't want to just say every all the power is generated in the nuclear power plant and you just fill a bunch of batteries and then you just take those batteries and put them in all your devices and that's how you do it. So I, I started looking at how small can you get a nuclear reactor so that you can power your smaller devices, like what's in your house, that kind of thing. 
So kind of the main place that they make small nuclear reactors is in space stuff. And the real, the first kind of mid-sized, what I'm calling a reactor, is called the Topaz. This was made by the Russians. It stands the it's for it stands for the Thermionic Experiment with Conversion in Active Zone, which doesn't spell Topaz, but it does in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't tell me the Russian. I couldn't find the Russian words, so I have just the English translation of the acronym. So this guy, it, it basically looks like the the head of a nuclear bomb. It's just like a like one of those conish space shapes. It weighs about. 700 pounds so you could put it on wheels and like or a small vehicle and kind of drag it around places or it could be just a fixture in your house like you know it's kind of comparable to like a you know a boiler (laughs) that you'd have in your basement and so this reactor was capable of delivering five kilowatts of power and that's off of 26 pounds of fuel so the, the fuel doesn't add too much weight to it the five kilowatts of power just kind of put perspective. A home outlet is typically 1.8 to 2.4 kilowatts. So you have roughly three regular outlets worth of power from this 700 pound unit here, which is not terrible. Like it, it, it works. Like it's not, like I said, it's not perfect, but you know, if you have three outlets worth of power, you can make, you can make that stretch. And you know, if, if you have like three to five of these in your home, you might not have as many outlets as you do nowadays. But you could probably split it between devices if they're not all on at the same time. Like, I, I figure it's definitely doable just to have these. And, you know, you get the fuel, you put it in there. Your house is pretty much covered, no problem. But, of course, like Ben mentioned, you get down to, like, your cell phone. How can you have a nuclear-powered cell phone? You can't have a 710-pound cell phone. That's ridiculous. And so I'm like, ha, here's my, here's my problem I'm going to solve. And then my research screwed me over because... They make some pretty small stuff that's nuclear powered. For example, you can get, uh, well, not anymore, but they would do, they used to do plutonium powered pacemakers. So once you get to a small enough scale with devices, you're not actually using the the fission reaction. So the way the, the nuclear power plants typically work is they work by fission. You have a bunch of uranium in water, or if you have a fancy one in like molten salt and metals, and you hit it with a neutron that you shoot from like a a beam and that splits up them and they explode and they create this chain reaction that generates a whole bunch of energy. Or you can do what they, you can use what they call, they call it a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, which basically means, hey, radioactive stuff just is hot. (laughs) And it uses the heat generated by the natural decay of a radioactive element and turns and just converts that heat into power. The cool thing about this being in the pacemakers is that the pacemaker can last 88 years on the little bit of plutonium that's put in it. Meanwhile, like a regular pacemaker has a battery that you have to replace, you know, you have to have a minor, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't call it go so far as called like a procedure, but you have to get it every five to six years, you have to get the battery replaced. So you do have to update that pacemaker. The ones with the nuclear ones, just put them in and forget it. And I was kind of looking into why they don't use it anymore. And it wasn't because they didn't really, like, they didn't work or they were, you know, filling people with radiation or anything like that. Um, It was really just because the electrical ones let you control the output of power a bit better, where you could set it, you know, to to respond to your, you know, your heartbeats. Once the tech got more sophisticated to respond to your body, they were able to do fancy things with the electric ones, while the radioactive one just was a constant pace. Like, it it just did one thing. You couldn't really modulate it. There was also some talk about cremation. So the the pacemakers were designed to survive cremation, but apparently when they the, some of them that they produced wouldn't survive the cremation process, like they were supposed to go up to those heats, but they you know the, the protective casings and all that uh, were insufficient. So it became a thing of, well, we don't know which ones aren't going to survive the cremation process. So basically, we're not going to put them in so that we don't have this problem later. And it actually became like a you know. I don't know how big an issue it was in the ultimate decisions compared to just tech improvements, but they didn't want to cremate people with nuclear-powered pacemakers in case the casing, you know, broke up. So really, at every scale, the nuclear power is working. Cars and vehicles are actually the weird in-between of wanting to be, like, a full-on reactor and, like, you know, small enough to be, like, a low-power device. Like, the 710-pound reactor is kind of, like, not quite enough power for a vehicle. 
And so I was trying to look into if anyone made a nuclear power cars and basically just found general concurrence of, you know, yeah, you could definitely make one in theory. And we've made a bunch of transportable small nuclear reactors for different types of things that are similar to like the power needs of a car, but no one's bothered to make an actual car. Although Ford did come out with a concept for a, uh, a nuclear powered car, car called the Ford Nucleon. And that was back in 1950. Ooh, that's a cool name. Yeah, it was basically like, just like, what is, like, it's like a, it's not a station wagon, but basically a station wagon, but like the back is like more pickup shaped and it's got a big circular turbine was kind of how they had it for the, the nuclear power generation. Just based on the name, I picture Homer Simpson's design for a car. <laughs> uh, it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> But really, they don't use them for, for, for cars because the shielding for it gets heavy. And uh, also, if you get into an accident, that's problematic. So scaling up and down, I really wasn't running into any, any real problems with the nuclear power. Like we, have the tech, we have the technology to do it. The question then was, do we have enough fuel? Do we have enough uranium? So according to Scientific American, there's 5.5 million metric tons of uranium that have been discovered. And an estimated 10.5 million more trons, you know, making up 16 total of uranium that has been undiscovered. So we know about where five and a half is based on what we know about. We can probably find 10 and a half more. That's like, you know, readily mineable. Our current uranium use in the world is 70,000 metric tons per year, meaning at the current rates, we have a 230 year supply of uranium available to us. Nuclear power makes up about 10% of the world's current energy usage. So if we multiply our usage rate by 10 to get to 100% nuclear power, we only have 23 years of uranium, which is not a whole lot. There's stuff we can do, though. First off, like simply upgrading our existing plants to modern technology and practices reduces like their energy consumption by about half. Sorry, fuel consumption by about half. So they can, you know, they can be twice as efficient just upgrading the modern tech. Like this includes the, you know, enriching the uranium further before you use it. And also like there's actually post processes where you can kind of separate the uranium and plutonium waste products and recover some of that as new fuel. So taking those two together, this puts us up to 46 years of fuel, which again is not super great. We're going to need a bit more uranium. The biggest source of the un of untapped uranium is actually the ocean. So there is uranium dissolved in the ocean that combines with oxygen molecules to make these uranyl ions. So basically just they're floating in the ocean and basically the comparison they draw is it's about a equivalent to a single grain of salt in a liter of water. But they actually do have methods for extracting these uranyl ions out of the water. The ions are actually positively charged. So using some fancy, you know, materials and methods. They, they keep updating them. It was, it was kind of a bunch of stuff that didn't make too much sense to me. But the, the takeaway is that you can stick a big stick in the water with a positive, with a, you know, with a negative charge that's appropriate to attract specifically these urinal ions and kind of trawl the ocean to pick up uranium. Are you sure that urinal is the right word for that? <laughs> I was going to ask. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's spelled U-R-A-N-Y-L. Okay. So it's not urinal, it's urinil or urinil. You know, yeah, it's you gotta you gotta say it with uh, less embarrassment. Um <laughs> <laughs> You said it confidently, so I bought it. Yeah, no, that's how you that's how you pronounce it. Um so these urinal ions in the ocean, the ocean is full of urinals. <laughs> <laughs> and as we said many times in the show, the ocean is big. So you have a single grain of you have a single grain of this in a liter of water. But if you add it all up together, the estimated quantity of uranium in the ocean is 4.5 billion metric tons, which is in billions, not millions, like the uranium deposits we have. So if we can extract the uranium out of the ocean, which we have the tech for, it's just not cost effective yet, which will matter less when it's our only option. This puts us up to a 12,937 year supply of nuclear fuel. But what if we're still worried? What if we're like, whoa, 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 12,000 years. I'm, I plan on having kids who plan on having kids. So, you know, 12,000 years down the line, what are we going to leave our leave our grand, 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 grandkids with? So if you look back at our nuclear power plants, um, the majority of them today are what they call LWR plants, which stands for light water reactors. Again, they work by shooting some neutrons into fuel, which has a bunch of water coolant to create a fission chain reaction, which splits up a bunch of uranium items and generates, you know, energy along with some byproducts. This is apparently 
as cool as it sounds, a wildly inefficient way to harvest the energy of uranium. As I mentioned a little earlier, you can like recover some of the spent fuel for energy, but it actually goes a bit further than that. They have what they call a breeder reactor, which you can even retrofit some of these existing reactors to become. And basically what this breeder reactor do, it modifies a process where the output of the fission process is actually more fissile material than you started with. So basically you shoot these, you shoot some neutrons to start this fission reaction and you end up with more material to create fission with than what you started with. I admittedly got a little lost on the exact mechanism this process functions. Like the clearest explanations I could find involved a literal spider web diagram of reactions. Like it goes from like uranium-239 to uranium-238 to plutonium to like thorium. And then like it lists those all across. And then there's like five more rows of reactions with just like all different colored arrows pointing from one way to the other and looping around back to the beginning. But basically the, the takeaway of these breeder reactors is that the process can extract nearly 100% of the energy latent in the uranium, while the light water reactors extract less than 1% of that energy. So you can take this 12,937 year fuel supply and turn it into 1.3 million years of fuel, which for now is acceptable. What about my great 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 dinosaur what about my dinosaur elders down the line? Yeah. Yeah, if we if we make it 1.3 million years in an entirely nuclear powered world, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have to start looking at like some fossil fuels, which at 1.3 million years later we'll have generated a whole bunch of new ones. We can just harvest the our ancestor soup and go back to fossil fuels. One last thing I I want to just touch on because we are talking about nuclear power, not in my backyard. Obviously, we're going to need to dispose of our nuclear waste somehow, and that's what everyone really doesn't like to hear about. Generally, though, like, the solution to disposing radioactive waste is to just bury it and forget about it forever. We've got a lot of Earth to bury things in. Like, you don't even need that much. Like, you need, like, you know, 10, 20 feet of Earth and put it underneath that, and really, you don't have to worry. You have to, you want to get under and away from, like, anything that's mobile, like, underwater Underwater water? <laughs> underground water. Sorry. Underground water, not underwater water. Every water is underwater water, except for the surface. Yeah. So there's really not like anything I have to, that like we have to change about how we get rid of our radioactive stuff. And we're not really going to run out of places to put it. Like you can just build more. You can just dig more holes. I mean, we'll run out eventually in the millions of years. No, I don't. Not really. Like, because it's so energy dense, like you're not using a lot of fuel to generate all this energy. So the amount of the volume of stuff that we're going to have is not that much. Like, I, I didn't do the actual math out on the what we extract from the ocean. But, you know, we have 5.5 million metric tons of uranium. It's not like there's, you know, an I like that there's going to be islands made entirely of uranium that we're harvesting. You know, uranium is a trace element. So even if you do a thousand times the trace element, you, you you know, you can just throw it under like Rhode Island or something, I'm sure. And there's an interesting quirk with the breeder reactor byproducts as well. So a typical light water reactor nuclear waste, right, just has a whole bunch of different nasty radioactive element elements in it and stays hot for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. And you just got to hide it. By happenstance, there's no elements in the end result of a breeder reactor with a half-life between 90 and 200,000 years. So the half-life is either 90 or less or 200,000 or more. So for those who don't know, the the half-life of an element is basically the measure of how long it takes for half of that radioactive mass to decay. So radioactive stuff is unstable, it shoots off energy, and basically the rate at which it shoots off energy and becomes a more stable element is the half-life. A shorter half-life means that it's happening pretty quickly. These are the more dangerous elements. The elements that have a 200,000-year half-life, yeah, they're going to stay radioactive effectively forever. But it doesn't matter because they decay so slowly they're not a safety hazard. So that means after, yeah, fair, a couple hundred years, because 90 years only gets rid of half of the waste, and then it'll be, you know, half as strong. But after a couple hundred years, after you go through like two or three half-lives, that waste is going to be pretty much safe. Because everything that's quickly decays is going to be done, and everything else in there is on the two, the scale of 200,000 years. So you can even cycle out this waste disposal. So basically, my conclusion here is, we should just use some more nuclear power, guys. It's pretty fucking good. It's basically magic. It, it's just 
the numbers are so much better than burning dinosaurs. So thank you for coming to my TED Talk. It's better <laughs> than the 690 people that power one home. Yeah, I mean, what you could do for what you could do to alleviate that, Chris, as you talked about, like you know, that's kind of prisoner work. So we just have to make sure we arrest six hundred ninety out of each every six hundred ninety-five people to make sure we have enough to power our homes and then feed them bananas. <laughs> feed them bananas, yes, <laughs> so that they have some dignity. Right. I like bananas. Well, arrest guess me. Who's getting arrested? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that does that does it for the energy talk. Let's hop on to our would you rather question of the day. Are you ready for the would you rather question? Who is? Uh, Marcus, I guess. Okay, me. I'm pretty much always going to pick Marcus because you never get to go first. It's fun. Would you rather never be able to wear pants or never be able to wear shoes? Ooh. Mm. All right, I'm going to start and say I broadly interpret shoes to include flip-flops, sandals, like all the non-shoes. shoes. Anything covering your feet, I guess. Socks. You get socks. I think you get socks. Yeah, yeah. That's true, I guess. You get socks, but no socks that are too close to shoes. Like, nothing that... Your feet are unprotected. I'll say that. Like, nothing that has, like, a rubber sole on the bottom or... I mean, socks protect your feet, too. Socks protect your... Yeah. You're, you, can, you can have thick socks, but they can get nasty. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other is... Pants. So clearly underpants are in effect because they are, by definition, underpants. Yes. You have underpants. You have underpants, but you can't use, like, shorts. I'm going to include shorts as pants. Yep, okay, that's fair. What about, like, leggings? Leggings or pants? Anything that goes over your underpants, I would say. By definition, if they're over underpants, they are pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the transitive property, anything over underpants. All right, I'm trying to find any reason why it's shoe. Like, it's, like, why... Wh- where is it acceptable to not have pants? Technically, the signs only say no shirt, no shoes, no service. <laughs> yeah they don't say nothing about pants so you can go into a restaurant is there any place where it's worse not to have shoes than not to have pants well i mean any situation where you need to do physical stuff where like because like shoes is the practical answer like you need shoes like it's not a social thing it's a practical thing you know you, i don't know if you can divide that line and say that have own being able to wear pants is impractical like it's about practicality because it's pretty impractical not to have pants because you can't go a lot of places yes because of social but practical social yeah i mean if if socially if it was acceptable if everyone did it then it wouldn't that would be fine but if everyone didn't wear shoes then it wouldn't be fine question can you wrap a towel around your waist well is that over underpants oh what if you don't have <laughs> but it's not if you don't have underpants this is true <laughs> um i don't know that's a really that's a gray area. Because cause I was thinking if you could live, you know, in like a beachfront area, you could just walk around underpants with a towel on your waist and not he always came out of the ocean. That is true. And most people wouldn't question it. But you also could walk around without shoes and that might just be easier. You don't have to really hide it if you're not wearing shoes. I mean, some places don't let you in if you, have, if you don't have shoes on, but more people don't let you in if you don't have pants on. All right. I, I think I'm, I may have found an actual no shoes is worse than no pants situation on a very hot sunny day it is painful to be on like concrete without shoes on like it'll burn your feet but not wearing pants would be kind of nice yeah it's like like it's like it's literally like just in your backyard doing like a home project with no guests is the shoes better than the pants so you don't you wouldn't actually like get in trouble legally if you have underpants on right uh you could i think it's gonna be a little bit of a gray area but if you're the dude who just never wears pants i don't think you get away with that well if it's a gray area you should probably get some new tidy whities like if you have like boxers instead of tidy whities people might like they don't really look like shorts but you if people aren't really looking that closely they might think it's shorts yeah people wear short shorts now it's possible if you work at a strip club Where your job doesn't require you have pants. Or shoes. Yeah, but basically, like, if you remove the need for pants ever, and then you just get shoes as a bonus. Okay, on an update on the legal situation, apparently most places, the, like, public indecency statutes involve, like, showing genitals. So I don't think you can legally get arrested. Yeah, you could be asked to leave an establishment because pantsless is not a protected category as far as I know. But as long as you're in a public area, you're fine, probably. Yeah. 
people may not like you, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm just, I, I just, I, I cannot contrive a situation that where I, where it's even like moving the needle away from just no shoes. Like being barefoot, one is a lot more acceptable, and two, you do get calluses and will get used to not wearing shoes eventually. You will, and you have socks in emergency cases. I don't like driving without shoes. Yeah, though. I was trying to imagine what it was like, what it would be like to drive without shoes. It's not great. I've never done it. It it's it's fine. Like I'll do it um in the summer if I have just flip flops with me because I think it's safer to drive barefoot than with flip flops on. Yeah, probably because there's a risk of your flip flops getting trapped up, up around different pedals and things. Safety tip from absurd hypotheticals here. Um, real safety tip: just have an extra set of shoes in your car. That's what I actually do now. But yeah, that's just about it. Like minor inconveniences, not having shoes. You get kicked out of some places still, but those same places are definitely going to kick you out for not having pants. <laughs> Pretty clear cut to me. Um, boating. Final answer. No shoes. Okay, Ben? Yeah, I'm going to go no shoes. I just can't. Like, the the hot day thing is technically a consideration, but it's just, you, you got to go no shoes. I agree. Shoes. I, I was thinking that I was going to go with the practical answer and say that I want shoes because functionality but then you're right like the social aspect is a practical thing and it comes up way more often and your body will adapt to having not shoes yeah so if you have a better would you rather than that stinker you can send that over to absurd hypotheticals at gmail.com and it doesn't have to even be would you rather if you have a good idea for a question for a whole episode send it to that same email address absurd hypotheticals at gmail.com really easy to remember it's just the name of the show at gmail.com and we are more than happy to get consider and use listener questions for our episodes so you can be part of making the show we've done it in the past we've had we have whole, done it in the past. whole episodes based on our user questions or listener questions and guess what they were awesome because people think differently than we do and we come up with all these questions for the most part so it's going to bring fresh new life into the show and it'll be all your fault other than that Leave a review. That's another way to help the show. Um, having lots of good reviews lets lots you know lets us pop up higher on search engines and all those types of things. Helps grow the show. Helps grow the audience. Helps us keep making it for you. And the most direct financial way to help the show is by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com/absurdhypotheticals and become a patron for just a singular dollar a month. You get access to all our bonus content that we make exclusively. For our patrons are very, very good hypothetipals, and uh, there's lots of good stuff there to find. The most direct way to support us financially is to hunt us down in person and then give us cash so we don't have to pay taxes. Uh, yeah, that's going to be Chris Yee, <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is the one you're going to be looking for. <laughs> don't bother tracking me. I'm moving soon, so you're going to have to, you know, you're going to start the progress, start your work, and have to start all over again. You're going to waste your time. So, tr- so please stalk Chris. Or Ben, their real names are right at the head of the show in the intro if you need to hear them again. And you can listen to that exact information again next week when we answer the following question. What if all continents were connected? (laughs) 